0: Here, quicken our hearts and our minds, we pray to receive what you would have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is exciting to be with you today. Thank you for the welcome, and it's nice to meet a number of you over the last couple of days. And it's exciting to be part of the church, not just this church, but to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ during this season. Because as I'm sure you're aware, the church... In the United States of America is changing. The news that you hear is sometimes very positive and it's sometimes very negative. Sometimes the news that you hear about Christians or the church is downright unbelievable. According to Gallup polls, about 40% of Americans say that they attend church regularly. But if you asked the Hartford Institute for Religious Research, they would say that the number of Christians who are actually in church on Sunday is more like 20%. Churches across our country are closing at record rates across all denominational lines, while at the same time, we see more and more churches being planted at an aggressive pace, more aggressive of a pace than we've seen in decades, to be certain. Politically speaking, our country is at a crossroads, and there are a number of moral issues that many Christians have bemoaned, the fact that we are becoming not just an agnostic country, but even an anti-Christian country. And yet, this Congress, the 114th Congress of the United States, claims that 92% of its members would identify themselves as Christian. So regardless of how you interpret the mixed statistics, or the conflicting information, one thing is for certain, and that is the church in the United States is changing. And in that change there's great excitement and opportunity, there's also great concern to be sure. This has implications for how we think about the church at large, and it has very significant implications about how you think of this church, your home church. You've been through transition for the last couple of years, and so the question that we ask this morning is, how does this church, in the midst of all of this change, remain true to form? Now, let me be clear about something as we begin this morning. We have um, this term, the church, that we're going to be using a lot throughout the message, When I say the church, what I do not mean is the building. What I do not mean is the institution. Some of you maybe come from a Catholic background, you think of the church being a global institution. That's not what we're talking about today. When I say the church this morning, I mean the local church, the gathered people of God in a geographical locale, you and those that were here in the first service as God's gathered people, his church. So what makes a church successful in the eyes of God? After all, God designed the church. He redeemed her. They're called his body, his people. And it stands to reason then that he would be the one who defines its success. And yet we have so many different ideas about what successful churches look like in this day and age. This is one of the ways in which the gospel of Jesus conflicts or collides with our contemporary Western culture. And so again, we ask the question, what makes a church continue to go in line with its design? How does a church remain successful and growing? In short, what makes a church true to form? I mean, that's really what you want to hear about from a pastoral candidate, isn't it? If I'm here for the next number of years, what makes a church true to form? And to answer that question, I want to ask you to open your Bible with me and to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is found on page 953 of that Bible on the pew in front of you. And that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Are you there? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 5, says this. It says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, and Apollos watered, but God gave growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants... And he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple." In an age of church growth strategies, with a desire to appeal to the culture around us, with a longing to be successful by any number of standards, Paul sets the record straight right away with this important reminder. We see in verses 5 to 9 that God, and only God, grows his church. Now, if you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you might recall there's a little conflict that's happening in this church family. Allegiances are forming along the lines of different leaders in the church, Apollos and Paul and maybe some others, and the Christians there are thinking to themselves in some way, if I align myself with this leader, then I will have greater standing, or this leader is the one who really has it right, and so I will be more successful if I follow him. And in response to this, Paul reminds them that the servants of God each play an important but complementary role in the life of his church family. But none of them, not one, would be the primary initiator for spiritual or physical growth. Paul planted. Apollos watered. So it's amazing to see as you think about what the life of that church would look like, and as you try to translate to this church, it's amazing to see how God in his divine providence and his care for his people orchestrates seasons of life and ministry, transitions. He calls people to places for certain times and for certain tasks. And he does that for their care and for his glory. He's done that in this church. You've been through multiple transitions over the last number of years, but this most recent one, two years of transition about. And God has cared for you. And he, you have leaders in this church that he has raised up from long ago who have been exceptional in their leadership. He continues to raise up leaders among you even now, and they're good. I have met a number of them this past week and over previous visits. They're really good at what they do. But let's be clear about something. None of them, not one, will be responsible or take the credit for the, genuine that, for the genuine growth that occurs here. Because only God does that. Look with me at verse 8. Paul says that the one who plants and the one who waters are one. One. Sure, they have different roles, different purposes, even different capacities, you might imagine, but they are one. They're not distinguishable from one another. Think of it this way. When you look at a swarm of bees, you know that in that swarm, there are different bees with different tasks or different roles, and you know that there's probably some bees that are more efficient than others. They're not all identical. There are probably some bees that are working harder than others, but you can't really tell the difference. They look like one. They're of one purpose, of one goal. He goes on to say further in verse 7 that in the end, neither the one who plants or the one who waters amounts to anything. That's kind of harsh. I mean, as a pastor, that hurts my feelings a little bit. Marty, does that hurt your feelings? Yeah? No? No? It takes a lot to hurt Marty's feelings. He's not trying to say he doesn't care for the workers and God's divine plan. He is intentionally, however, trying to diminish the importance of their work and highlight the importance of God's work. He is the one that does the work among his people. And so if God grows the church, God receives the credit and the glory. And from my understanding, Old North Church has grown significantly over the last number of years, spiritually and numerically, and in that growth, God receives the credit and the glory. And of course, it's our desire that God would continue to receive credit and glory as the church continues to grow in depth of knowledge and insight and faithfulness to him and in conversions as well. But let's take this a step further. When you grow in your personal life, When you grow in your understanding of the things of God, when you grow in your faithfulness to him, when you find yourself succeeding in areas of ministry that you never thought were possible, not in a million years, who receives the credit? Is it one of your pastors? Is it the Sunday school teacher that you had or the brother or sister in Christ who walked alongside of you and discipled you. So your parents who taught you the ways of the Lord. No. God, and only God, receives the credit and the glory for growing his people. So, true to form, God accomplishes his work among his people. How does he do it? Look with me at verses 10 to 15. We see here that God grows his church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Paul is like a skilled master builder, it says in verse 10. But verse 11 says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, let's be clear. About what this foundation is. Notice that he does not say that the foundation is a series of doctrinal beliefs about Jesus Christ. The foundation of God's people, of his church, is the person of Jesus. We see this in a number of different uh, expressions in the Bible. We hear Jesus talked about as a foundation, also as the chief cornerstone a number of times. One example is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And this passage, before I read it, is an identity forming statement. If you want to know what you are as a church, if you believe in Christ and you're following Him, this is part of your identity, how God views you. It says this You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Jesus is the foundation. What does it mean that he is the foundation? Well, it means that we stand on his person, his teaching, his work for a life with God and for any type of ministry of God that emerges. The gospel of Jesus Christ that we, all of us, are sinners and need forgiveness of those sins. That Jesus, God's perfect son, came, lived a sinless life, paid the penalty for our sins on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. That those who would believe in him through faith would receive God's mercy and grace and be brought into an eternal relationship with God the Father. Beyond that, we see that Jesus intercedes on behalf of his people still and that one day he will come again drawing all of those to himself to consummate his kingdom and bring them into eternity. So without Christ, there's no access to God. It's as if we're reaching up For a relationship with this Heavenly Father, and we have nothing we can do to reach Him. We need a foundation to stand on. We need Jesus. And without Him, there's nothing to build on here. All other ground is sinking sand. You know, I love the story of the two boys, ages four and six. These boys were excessively mischievous. So much so that if their mother heard of some mischief happening in town, she knew it had to be her two sons. And she heard that the local preacher was good at disciplining children and had helped other families in the past, and so she called him and asked if he would speak with her boys And the preacher agreed, and he said, on one condition, that I meet with them individually. And so mom sent the younger boy in the morning and the older boy in the afternoon to meet with the preacher. And as the younger boy went into the preacher's office, he sat down in the chair and he looked at this preacher, who was a large, imposing figure, and asked him in his deep, booming voice, son, do you know where God is? And the boy's mouth dropped wide open. He didn't say a word. And he sat there, and so the preacher said even more sternly, waving his finger this time, do you know where God is? Silence. And so a third time, the the preacher bellowed at this young boy, where is God? And at that, the boy screamed. He got up out of his chair. He ran out of the church. He ran across the neighborhood to his house. He opened the front door. He ran up the stairs, flew into the back of his closet, and closed the door behind him. Sometime later, his older brother came and found him there. And he said, What happened? And the younger boy just looked at him and said, We are in big trouble now. God is missing. And they think we did it. (laughs) We laugh because people can't be responsible for the absence of God, can they? And yet for 2,000 years, we've seen churches seek to build their families, their bodies on foundations other than the person of Jesus. And then they wonder where God is in their midst. We see other churches that start out building on the foundation of Jesus and have lost their way. They are not fulfilling their design. They're not staying true to form. And it's not really any different today. We can look around and we can see all types of different churches. And we can imagine the different types of foundations that they're building on. Some of them start off strong and over time, they come to realize or you begin to see that their foundation is really just a message of cultural morality or maybe they've had their foundation be the different political hot button topics of the day. And as time advances, people sense a lack of power, a lack of meaning, a lack of significance. An absence of God, and they begin to dissipate. And what's left is a shell of a former church family that remains. Other churches appear to be very successful from the outside. Man, these places are booming. You can webcast their services. You can see them on TV you can go and visit them and almost serve sort of an attractional type of basis. And some of them are great, and some of them are pure, and some of them are godly. And there are others, when you peel back the layers of the foundation, you begin to see that the foundation really is a personality. Or maybe it's a driving theology of health and wealth. Or maybe it's a repeated series of messages that are designed to really make you. Feel good as if the church is a gas station to come in and fill you up, and so then you can go back out and feel good about yourself this week. Paul gives a word of warning for those that claim to be part of the family of God. He says in verse 11, Let each one take care how he builds. The resources of gold and silver and wood, hay and straw that he talks about here, talking about different quality of lasting and valuable resources as building materials, certainly invokes images of the temple in the Old Testament as what it could have been like with these precious materials. And we see that there is a coming day in which our efforts and our resources will be made clear. Verses 13 to 15 talk about this. It's a verse that has a lot of discussion over the years. It says this in verse 13: It says, Each one's work will become manifest or become clear, become known, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So we see in verse 13 that all of our work in building on the foundation of Jesus will be made manifest, will be made known on the day. What day are we talking about? we're most likely talking about the day of the Lord or judgment day. That day when every person, Christian or non-Christian, will stand before the throne. And the Bible talks about judgment and rewards in a number of different places. We could give you 15 examples. Here's just a couple. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. If you're even the slightest inkling of thinking in long-term effect... These passages are sobering to us, aren't they? That all of my thoughts and motives and works will be revealed before God someday as I am laid bare before him for individuals and corporately as a local church. This passage is addressed to a gathered group of people. And so for those who remain vigilant, God rewards. For those who do not, he does not reward. Their salvation is not in question here. He's not talking about them working towards salvation. We know that's only through God's grace. There's no merit that you can gain of your own. He even goes on to say that they will be saved. But what is clear is that there's an expectation that God's people are to participate in his work. And if the quality of our efforts as individuals and corporately will be shown for what they really are, then the implication... He said, we better build carefully. We better build with the long view in mind. With simple but pure desires for the worship and for the love of God. For sharing the gospel with our friends and neighbors. To grow in faithfulness in following him. To grow with each other into maturity into Jesus Christ. And I imagine you're beginning to feel the tension here. Because in the first section... You're saying, Nick, you just told me 10 minutes ago that God is the only one who grows his church. Yeah, he is. And now you're saying that we have an active role or participation that we'll be held accountable for in some way. Yeah, we will. But the result, when a church has a foundation of Jesus and pursues a life that flows in and out of His person, his work, his words is astonishing. It is this. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. The result is that the church is the temple of God. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you or that temple. So this is another corporate identity forming statement for Old North Church. It's often applied to our personal spiritual life. You've heard it said again and again, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we see that later actually in 1 Corinthians even. But here we're not talking about you as individuals, we're talking about you, not the building, not the institution of the church. We're talking about you as the local gathered people of God in this church who are called together to worship Him. And the fact that God would make you a humble local church in the eastern end of Ohio, His temple, is absolutely astonishing. Because the temple is where God dwells. And the word here is not talking about the temple at large with all of its gates and nooks and crannies and rooms. It's talking in the original language about that most sacred place. The place that is holy. The place where God himself dwells. And when people come in contact with God in his presence in the Bible, you see their response to be things like, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Or you see them fall prostrate on the ground before him, because there's no words that are adequate to express being in his presence. Or like Moses, you see as he comes down after encountering God and his face is lit up. He's completely changed. And we recognize that people come to God, all of us came to God with all kinds of different motives and desires and different conditions attached. But when you actually meet him, you will not leave the same way in which you came. You are necessarily changed. I don't know if you've experienced this reality regularly here at Old North or not. I hope you have. I often hear this expressed by people I meet at our church on Cape Cod. They say things to me like they don't even know the significance of what they're saying, but they say things like Pastor, I don't even know how to describe it. When I come here I feel presence of God. And I didn't expect that. It's the presence of God among his gathered people that causes within you emotions to well up as you sing these songs to him this morning and as tears start to come to your eyes for some of you, or as you break out in spontaneous clapping, not for just the wonderful music that is played, but because the response to God's work is joy and clapping. It's His Spirit among you that does that. It's the presence of God in His Holy Spirit in the gathered group of people that when the preacher says something to you, like you're the only person in the room Like he was reading your mail that week. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit among you that convicts you of your sin when you are confronted with it or gives you great joy and confidence when you are reminded of the old, old story of God's love through Jesus Christ and how it is applied to you personally and how it's applied to you as a church family and how you rejoice and you see all the life change that's happening around you. And I can imagine by now that you're starting to see the Trinitarian nature of this foundation of what God's work really is. Because you saw in verses five to nine, God, God the Father, is the only one who grows His church. In the second section, you see Jesus Christ, the one who bought this church with His blood, is the foundation for anything that it has going forward. And now you see in this third section of the text that God's Holy Spirit chooses to dwell among you, even you, as His temple. And if this is true, there are so many different implications that we can flesh out here. I mean, the easiest one is very simply that you don't come to church. You are the church. But even in coming for corporate gatherings together, something unique happens. Hebrews 10.25 says, We do not forsake the gathering of believers, as some are in the habit of doing, but instead we encourage each other all the more as the day approaches. What day? The day of the Lord. We see and realize then that coming to worship as God's gathered people means that God will dwell among them and meet with them, and his presence is unique in a place like this. We see that God's family, God's building, God's field, God's flock, the body of Christ are to function in connection to God and by necessity to each other. And as happens when you come together with your family, there's great joy and celebration because you like your family. At least most of them. And even though we have joy and celebration, we see that there is great implications for our disposition as we approach God because if you indeed come as a gathered people of God to have God dwell among you, then by all means, you come sincerely to him. You take God and the things of God very seriously. And we don't take any of this flippantly. And we rejoice, don't we? because the god who showed himself as a burning bush who displayed himself as a cloud of smoke on mount sinai who led his people through the wilderness as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud during the day a god who chose who saw fit to dwell among his people in a temple a god who came to earth in his son to identify with each one of us in our exact places of need so he could be the sufficient sacrifice, now chooses to continue to dwell among us in the power of his Holy Spirit as the gathered people of God are together. Praise God that he never leaves nor forsakes his people. And he's not leaving you nor forsaking you now. And if this is true, as a uniquely gathered group of people, if you're the dwelling place of this kind of God, then being a committed member of a local church family is no small thing. In fact, that is the type of commitment that provides a place for you to distinctly meet with God and to grow in relationship with Christ, with all of those around you, in a way that no other place in this lifetime, will provide for you. English Baptist minister named Leslie Stokes once wrote a short parable. He said, once upon a time, there was a tree. It was a lovely looking tree. It was shapely and strong and stately. But appearances are not always to be trusted, and they were not to be so in this case. For the tree knew inwardly that its massive strength was beginning to wane, and when the wind was strong, it felt some ominous creaks throughout its body. And so wisely, the tree took itself in hand, and after much effort, it grew one or two more branches. And it looked even more stately and even more solid than it looked before. But when the next gale blew, there was a terrific snapping of the roots. And but for a friendly neighbor, this tree would have fallen flat on its ground. When the tree recovered from the shock, it said to its neighboring tree, tell me how is it that not only you withstood the gale, but that you were able to hold me up as well? And the neighboring tree said, oh, that's easy. While you were busy building more branches, I was strengthening my roots. The parable can be applied to both the lives of individuals and to churches. But as it relates to churches, many churches when they go through seasons of transition or unknowns, are concerned about life and strength, rightly so, and so as a result, they grow new branches in pursuit of vibrancy. But Stoke reminds us, ought we not rather attend to the roots to strengthen the meetings for prayer and Bible study and to be more diligent about these things in private as well Old fashioned things are these, to be sure. But then, roots are old fashioned. And no substitute has been found for them. My friends, I feel as if we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what it means to know God, to know the riches. Of his glory that are found in Christ, to see him more clearly than we see him right now, even in the context of his gathered people in which he dwells. How does a church remain successful? How does a church continue to grow? Keep growing on the foundation of Christ. Let your activities, let your words, let your works flow in and out of the reality of this Son of God who has paid everything for you. And when you do that, when you grow deep roots and keep growing deep roots, you grow really wide and strong branches. And God uses you to influence an entire community, even an entire region of people as this church has the capability of doing So stay true to the gospel, and when you do, know that God will dwell among you, and he will grow you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, The fact that you choose to dwell among people like us is astonishing to us. And our response is to worship you, to humble ourselves before you as you call us to do. Our response is to follow you faithfully and to commit ourselves again and again and again to this person of Jesus Christ and to the reality of a new life in him. And so it's my prayer for each person here today. But as they consider the message from 1 Corinthians 3, as they consider the future direction of this church, Lord, that you would again remind them of the wonders of the cross and the love that you've displayed for each one, no matter where they come from, through Jesus Christ. And through him, there's so much to build on thank you and praise you for that in his name.